I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have our good friend in northern Washington, Doug, joining us today. Uh, He hasn't been on the show for some time, so uh, he called me the other day, just two hours after he had a sighting, so we're going to be talking about that. But first of all, I wanted to mention... Uh, everybody's asked about the Mr. Black interview. So I spent about five hours this morning going through the first 10 of 28 pages of the transcript, the written transcript of the interview. And I cleaned it up. uh, Well, I didn't have to clean it up. I have to, uh, when you transcribe something like that, I use uh, Otter AI to transcribe. And it's pretty good. You get about 95% accuracy, but you still have to go through and listen and compares you're looking at the transcript word by word so I wanted it to be verbatim what he said and I wanted to break it up a little bit so uh, I got the first 10 pages off to our reader he'll be doing that this week so I'm hoping uh, by the end of next week we should have that first segment up and like I said it's 28 pages it actually probably would break up a little bit more um, because of punctuation and things like that but so there's going to be three pieces to that interview that he's going to read so that'll be up soon folks tom do you have anything to break uh, you want to bring up yeah absolutely uh first off i want to thank doug for joining us uh we talked to J- doug i think a couple years ago and uh so he's up in a good spot for uh, having encounters with these things up in washington state um, I also want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And uh, if you like the show, I know we say it all the time, but we'll keep saying it. If you like the show, let us know. Let the algorithm know. Click the like and subscribe button if you haven't subscribed already. And if you want to really help support us, you can. It helps a bunch. Uh, we've got a link to Patreon, and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. So with that said, um, well, I was thinking, Doug, how you doing? I am very well. Thank you. Doug, since it's been a while since you were on and we've got a lot of new listeners, I was thinking it might be good for you to go, you maybe talk about, you know, how you got into this topic, things you've seen in the past, and then uh, maybe after that go into a little bit about the things your dad has seen and experienced, and then we, and then at last part we'll go into this latest sighting that you had. What do you think? Sure. Okay. Sure. Well, I'm going to hand the mic to you and... Uh, We'll be listening. Well, I didn't. I didn't really try to get into the topic. It just. I just just started having sequences of discoveries while working in the forest as a forester. So. The first thing that really happened was uh, I was a college intern, and I was attending the University of Idaho at the time. There. Uh, forestry college there and in the summertime you'd, you, if you were smart you'd go out and get an internship so that you'd have something on a, your resume when you graduated to get it that's kind of how the forestry world works in the northwest at least so um, i was working an internship up in yakima 
and I was up in the Ontanum State Forest working on forest inventory project, and uh, you, that's where you go out and it's a you're not just uh, inventorying trees; you're you're looking at the the soils and the, the grass and just you know the, the shrubs and all that stuff. Uh, you're you're taking into account and recording the the um, the aspect of the terrain and um, just a lot of data collection and um, coring trees for age and getting total heights on trees and diameters and all that and I was just out doing that and I was out I was way up in the Ontanum State Forest behind several gates that only had somebody working for the agency I was doing the internship for would add a key to um, and so I was up there working and I, I started seeing these footprints in the in the ground and it was summertime and I, I just thought to myself this is no human would be able to do this and um and then over the course of my career it just kind of exponentially took off and uh, I, I i i remember in in the early i've been a forester since 2008 but i was doing internships before that and i remember meeting foresters that would under the kind of under the radar out of the sight of any supervisor they would talk about things that they had seen or heard or whatever and but for me, it was just spending time day in and day out all year round up here in the North Cascade Mountains. Uh, I was seeing tracks all the time, and then I would uh, be hearing things, and then, of course, I began to have encounters, and and, uh, and I would see these things. Usually, unlike the encounter I had a couple of days ago, it was a really fast, almost like a bolt of lightning sighting it's just something that happened so fast that i didn't really think about it like it that that, that couldn't have been what i what i thought it was um and i had a i've mentioned this before i think on the other show i had a i had a situation which i won't go into too deeply but it i was there was a, a group of these things in an area that i'd been working in for several months and i didn't know they were there and they were yelling at me and screaming and banging rocks or uh, uh, I think it was a rock. I don't think that it was the, the wood knock type thing. It was like this thing had a rock and it was banging it up against another rock and there was another one up on a ridge, you know, kind of making a very strange type of vocalization. Um, and it really frightened me to the point where I got, I got to the point where I was really listening to a lot of different podcasts on the topic and trying to educate myself more. Um, but as I was doing that, I became more afraid based on the things I was listening to. And then I, I started thinking in my mind, um, I think that a lot of the stuff that I was hearing, especially Will 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 know what I'm talking about from certain um, certain avenues was just complete nonsense, um, and uh, that was kind of adding to the fear I think. And um, and I had a choice: I could either not work in the woods anymore, which I've met people that have literally not they just quit their job working in the woods after they had an encounter or something like that. And it made it was just they were so frightened they couldn't go back. And I didn't have that option; I had to go to work. And so I just went to work and just kind of pushed through it and um 
I, I, I saw one. I had a really good view of one run across a road that was in a in a rural area, but it wasn't very rural. But it was, you know, it was just a. There were some farmhouses here and there, and it was in the early morning, and I'd seen it, and that was really, a, a really the first good look I got at one of these things. Um, I couldn't believe how fast it was moving, and uh, it just had the most bizarre gait I've ever seen. And um, and then just from there, I just I would have encounter after encounter, but it wasn't all the time. It was uh, it was it was just bizarre to me. It was I was never able to get a pattern down on these things. Like these things live over there. And they they live in this particular type of habitat or environment, and and uh, there's this many of them, and they look like this, and they're going to be here at this time, like you know you're scouting a deer or something. It just it's so sporadic what I've learned over the years with the encounters I've had, and I've had them in high elevation, I've had them in low elevation, and a majority of the sightings I've had, except for the one I had recently, were in areas that were uh, timbered with a lot of timber, but a lot of houses down below, uh, you know, down off the mountain. The, the mountain was, the, those ones that chased me off the hill that I was talking about that were yelling and stuff, they were, that little small mountain I was on, there was houses all the way around that thing. And I thought to myself, these things went right through, somehow through these, you know, houses that weren't seen and got right to where I was at. And so um, I, I started learning, you know, that they're not just way up in the high country, um, and like I said, uh, several of the encounters I've had, three, I would say, uh, one visual and, and, and two audio were fairly adjacent to civilization. Um, but, but, but then, uh, a lot of the times I'm, I, I primarily am a timber cruiser and I go out and, and scale standing trees before they're harvested to figure out how many board feeder in them and, and, and and appraise them for clients, and, and that's mostly what I do. And so I'm all over the place, and in a lot of different, you know, high elevation, like I said, low elevation, and um, I, I've just seen these things and their tracks and their sounds and their sign in all of these different places where I work. And so I've just learned that they're, they're, they're it seems to me like they're everywhere. But at the same time, when I talk to people that want to do research on it, um, I just kind of tell them, you know, I'm out, I'm out there every day off the trails, and and I don't see that. I, I don't see one. I don't see a track. I I see tracks often, but it's maybe once every couple months I'll see one, but it's not all the time. And so it's like for me to just go out randomly up in you know the Suwato River, or, you know, up by Mount Baker or something, and just hope I'm going to see one. I I know I'm probably not going to. I don't bet on it when I'm going to work. It's just when you're in the woods that much, you're going to start seeing things and hearing things and whatnot. So um, anyway, that's kind of just the, I guess, my experience over the years working in the woods. Um, I, I, when I go to work, I, I try not to think about these things. I try not to let it bother me, um, but I, I am very aware that they're out there. But I've learned that you you can't you can go out in the woods with a gatling gun like that dude in the predator and be armed to the teeth and one of these things could come up right behind you you'd never know it's there you'd never see it and could snap your neck like that so i realized that you know you uh, it you're kind of in 
it's kind of like being an abalone diver. You know, those guys, they say that it's, it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to have an encounter with a white shark. And I kind of approach the Bigfoot thing the same way. Um, and I go, <laughs> I never leave my truck without getting on my knees, literally, and, and praying to God that I'll get through the day. Um, and it, actually, this last summer, I was working out of North Bend, and there was a, a sign up for a missing hiker. And it was a woman that w- was went up there alone, and she never came back, and she was never found. And that was posted in August, I believe, of 2020, just before our last interview. And I had to go work at right where she disappeared. And it was it was terrifying to me. Um, I pushed through it and worked, and I knew, and I'm not saying that that's what did this, um, but when, when you know a fair amount about these things, and then you go into an area where somebody disappeared and hasn't been found, you know, it's kind of hard not to put two and two together. Um, but over the years, I've learned not to be afraid. Um, like I said, there's really nothing you can do about it. You can't, you can't see them. Um, and uh, there's just not a lot you can do. And, and so I, I, just, I, I'm, I try not to be afraid. And, and this, this encounter I had a few days ago, um, I, 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 was, I was startled is what I was. It, was. it was startling to me because the other sightings I had had before, I, the, the, the thing was moving so fast, I barely got a glimpse of it. Um, other than the, like that footage my dad has from Hood River, Oregon, where you really get a good look at these things, the ones that I've had were, were just a really quick. It's just boom. You know, that one that ran across the road was moving just incredibly fast. And I, I really, I, I didn't get to look at its face or uh, any of really of its major features. I just saw what looked like a, a seven to eight foot tall professional basketball player running on four, on all fours. Like it was like it literally was about to fall over the gate that it had, and it was moving faster than anything I've ever seen. Um, this last encounter a couple of days ago, I, I actually got a good look at this thing, and it didn't move. It did not move when I was looking at it. Um, and then when I would move and then turn back, it, it would move. Um, and I can go into the, the details of that if you want, because you know, everything else pretty much I've explained, and I've, I've explained on other shows that I've done with you, Will. So. Yeah, please do. I, I give us the details on that. But just before you do, Doug, I want to reaffirm everything that you just said in the last 10 minutes really is a repeating pattern. I was just Will and I are texting back and forth virtually everything you know they're there but you don't know it um they're so fast i had one visual encounter it was like it was over before it started it was so fast um and um and that and they're a lot closer you know we'll, we'll we can talk about it later but there was one very very dramatic encounter where we had a group with a group of these things 150 yards from a highway so but we're here to hear about your encounter, and I want to hear the details on this latest one, especially the guy that, you know, he doesn't move. Um, so fill us in. Give us, you know, some details. Sure, sure. And, Is it okay if I backtrack for a second? There was a couple. There was two other ones that I forgot to mention. Oh, you're the boss. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so. Uh, one of the other ones I was going to mention is a couple of years ago, I was just camping in a camper on the river, and it was like March, and it was like like it is now with the weather. It was real, 
just dry and cold, which is kind of unusual for this area because it's a rainforest, but we do get these spells of, you know, a couple of days or a, or a week or a few weeks of really cold and uh, no no precip. And um, it was a full, it was almost a full moon, and, and the, the moon was shining down on the river that I was camped on. And um, I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know if I had to pee. I'm not really sure what it was, but I, I, I saw one of these things literally just right across the river from me walking around, and it was a with the, the with the moonlight on it, it looked a gray or white color, and I had remembered that there had been a sighting in the re- in the area recently of supposedly a white one, and I, I was wasn't sure if that was the one or not. But this thing was it was it was a bizarre encounter because you know I mean how often do you get the luxury of being in a camp trailer sitting in there nice and warm and you just look out the look out your trailer window and you see one of these things and. But the encounter was interesting because what it was doing, it was, it was just kind of it, it. It looked like it was almost just kind of walking back and forth on the river where the boulders and sand are and whatnot. And it looked like it had lost something. And it was it was looking around like kind of walking in circles, like you'd lost your watch or your keys on the ground. And uh, I watched this thing for quite a while doing that. And I was just like, you know, what is this? You know, what is it doing? Is it, it's not fishing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what is it looking for um and then the other one was i and i didn't see this other one but i was i was driving this uh, kid home one night he lived way out in the country outside of the small logging town i live in and and i was driving and he was kind of sitting behind me in this van we take these kids kids home from the there's a youth thing they do on mondays and i was driving the kids home and he was the last kid he lived the farthest out and He's sitting there talking to me, and I'm watching the road, and it's nighttime, and and he's like, "Whoa, dude, did you just did you see that guy over there?" And I said, "No, I didn't." And he's like, "Dude, there's a guy that was standing right next to that stop sign, and he was taller than the stop sign. He was huge, and he it looked like he was all wearing black." And I was like, "And I, I didn't want to tell him what I was pretty sure is what that was," um, but. <laughs> You know, after I dropped him off, I was like, man, that kid just looks saw Bigfoot standing right next to that stop sign. You know, I had to have been seven, eight feet tall. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so a couple of days ago I was out working. Um, I was doing uh, basically after they, they log up here in the northwest, you know, they go in and they replant. It's, it's required by law by the state, and so um, if you're a – private outfit or even a government agency and you you harvest timber you have to replant and um and then after about two years the foresters will go in and and do an inventory of what was planted and and see how it's doing if it has uh problems uh in the site it was planted in um if it has any type of uh, browse from deer and elk or mountain beaver and and uh, you're also looking at the the vegetation around the area and seeing how much competing vegetation is there and you're documenting all this stuff and you're figuring out trees per acre and it's a it's a really simple task the the only downside to it is you're you're hiking up and down the mountains all day long you know other than that it's it's just it's pretty simple work and it's kind of a a break for me cruising timber all the time and getting to do this i i usually enjoy doing it and so it was just a normal day and i was out it was sunny and it must have been two o'clock in the afternoon um and I was working this unit, and my colleague had been in there a day. So I was out there. This happened on a 
a Wednesday, I believe, or a Thursday. I'm not sure, but he was out two days prior to me. He had started the unit. He was a, in the upper elevation of the unit because the snow had come in, and he wanted to get it done so that he could still see the, the seedlings before the snow got them really good and covered them up. And, and he's like, yeah, man, I'm, I finished about half of it, and uh, I'll give you the lower elevation stuff down by the river. And uh, I was like, okay. And so I went in, and I had worked this unit for two days, and it was my last day. And... um in these clear-cut units up here, um, a lot of these waterways, I won't get into the forestry details of it, but basically you, the, where there's creeks and whatnot, usually you're required by state law to leave what's called a riparian buffer in it. It could be anywhere from 50 feet to a small little stream, or it can be up, you know, over 100 feet for if it's a fish-type stream. And it's basically, you can't cut within, you know, you can't cut up to 100 feet of that stream. It's to protect the, the stream for the fish and, and, and amphibians and that kind of thing. And so these clear-cut units that you're working in will just kind of be a mosaic of no trees. There'll be leaf tree patches here and there, and then there'll be these long, linear riparian buffers along the, the landscape of the hillsides and whatnot. And so that's what this looked like. It was just kind of big areas of kind of no-man's land where it was harvested and there's no trees left, and then you'd see these long lines of, of stream buffers. And I was out in the open, and I was running a, a compass line and focusing on that and, and doing my, my inventory stuff and um, exams, actually, survival exams, what we call them. And I looked over to my 3 o'clock, and there was a, a road that was built for that particular timber harvest unit to get the wood out. And... Um, it was still open. At road crews hadn't abandoned it yet, and um, and the road went up the hill, sort of diagonal to me, and then it, and then it intersected one of those riparian areas where the stream was. So there was trees in there and vegetation and whatnot. And anyway, I'm doing my thing, and I just I, I glanced over and I saw where that road and that riparian area met, and I saw the silhouette of something that just it didn't look right, and that it just caught my eye. It didn't look right, and. I told Will right after I had the encounter, I said, you know, I, I see that kind of stuff all the time, and I look at it, and I use my laser range finder that has kind of a binocular function, and usually it's nothing. It's a stump or a log or just something that looks Bigfoot-ish, you know, and usually it's nothing, and that's what I thought. I'm just like, well, that's just a stump or it's just a log or whatever. I'm not going to get freaked out by this because it happens all the time, and I decided to get out my laser rangefinder, and I'm, my guess is that the distance was probably about 400 yards, maybe three, 400 yards. But I, but I got a really good look at the thing, and with with my laser rangefinder, just looking at it with that, and I looked at this thing, and I was like, okay, you know, it it, it has a this this thing looks like a a, a big human type thing, you know, and it, and it. Uh, it had just a really big, barely upper torso. Now the the lower torso I couldn't see. I, I could only see from I would say from like the the belly button or whatever, if it was a person, up to the top of the head. And it was facing me, and it had the sun to its back, so I could see the sun hitting the left side of it, and it had this sort of shiny brown color to it, and. At that point, I'm like, no, nah, this is just—it's still a stump. But the thing that really stuck out to me was that it, there was there was an arm, there was a clear arm that I could see on this thing, and it would have been on its left side. 
Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, that can't be what I'm thinking that is. It just, I, you know, I just that can't be what that is. There's just no way. And I just I kept looking at it and, and looking back and readjusting my eyes and looking at it again with my laser range finder, and I'm like, that's a Bigfoot. That is a damn Bigfoot. <laughs> you know, that is like, that's what I'm seeing. It's just it's hard when you see something like that. You're We're, like, conditioned in our society to think that does not exist. That can't exist. And... And so even though I, I, I know they exist and I've seen them before, that, that's just the thing that went through my head. I was like, that's not, what the, that's not what I'm seeing. So I decided to just, I wasn't convinced at that point. So I decided to keep moving on the, the compass line I was working. And I'm paying attention to my compass, but I, I kept looking over. And I noticed that I, I moved about 100 feet after I decided to just keep moving. And when then when I looked over again, it had moved. And... uh it had moved a couple, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 feet. And at that point, I, I couldn't see I couldn't see the classic Bigfoot-type silhouette. And I was just like, man, you know, what's going on? What is this thing doing? Is this, am I seeing things? And I decided, you know, I'm gonna, I have to finish my job. And I, and I had about 45 minutes left of work to do out there. And, and I had to basically do a a 90-degree offset from the line I was on and then run back in sort of the general area where that thing was. And um, I remember one of the things that went through my mind, I had heard Will say years ago, and it was, you know, if you have an, a situation like this and, and you're freaked out, um, don't panic and, and run out of there. Just casually leave the area. And um, and so that's pretty much what I did. I finished my, my work, my plots that I was doing, and, I just I had my dog with me. That was the other thing. My dog didn't pick up anything on it, didn't smell it, nothing. Um, and I just casually walked back to my truck. And when I got to my truck, I'm like, okay, I've got my truck. I, I have the safety of my truck. I'm going to drive up to where this was at, where it was standing. And I can drive right to it. And so I did. And when I got there, there was no stump and there was no log. There was nothing there. And I looked down and I could see because it was standing these 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 low volume forest roads they build up here that you know they'll they'll cut into the the hillside if you were kind of look thinking of it in a cross section view they cut into the hillside and then they they fill with that cut material and they they level it out into a road grade and where that fill is is usually a it can be really steep in some places. And this was one of those places where the the road crossed a stream so they had a big culvert and then a bunch of fill over it on and on the on the on the right side of the road there was a good i would say at least 10 12 foot drop off and that's where that thing was standing um i'm not saying this thing was 15 feet tall it, it might not have been standing exactly at the lowest point where that culvert was but in the general area where it was standing if i would have been standing there this you wouldn't have probably have barely seen my head and so i'm like man you know this thing was a lot bigger than I was thinking it was, and um, and it didn't move. That was the thing. It it, it it's like it, it kind of when I when I when I really got my my rangefinder out and started looking at it, um, it it did not move at all. It didn't it did not move. When I took my eyes off of it for a good twenty to thirty seconds, then it moved. Um, and then well, I forgot to mention when I was finishing my work. I did see a track, and it was in an it was on a spot where because it's so brushy here you know, in the 
Puget Sound, the mountains here, it's so brushy, it's really hard to even see a track unless you see one in the mud or the snow. And this was a spot where there was a bunch of road road material <clears throat> that had been muddy or whatnot. We had a storm a few weeks ago, and this thing had a nice print right there. And it, it was at least, I would say, 14-plus inches, classic Bigfoot print. And then I saw another one on the very last uh, measurement plot I was doing, and it was much smaller. It looked like maybe a size 9 or a size 10 print in the ground. And, and, and then the other thing was that I, after I had seen this thing and decided I'm just going to finish my work and just kind of ignore it, um, there was just a kind of a – and I was adjacent to a, a river, um, and it, this whole place was right adjacent to a river. And something was down in the river about – maybe 15, 20 minutes after my sighting that was making a, some some noises that it sounded like people yelling, and but I couldn't make out what they were saying. And so, I, so after, like I said, after the sighting, that, that vocalization thing that I heard, and, and while all this was going on, I really wasn't putting everything together until I saw the tracks. And then I, so I put the tracks together, what I saw, and then, of course, that sound, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is definitely what I saw it's real. And, and then of course I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Who am I going to tell? I'm not going to tell my boss, you know, I'm not going to tell my friends. <laughs> I'm like, I'll tell Will. <laughs> He'll believe me. So <laughs> that's pretty much it. Doug, a lot of what you just said resonates with the experiences that Will and I've had, the ones I've had here in Oregon. Um, and, and, you know, so often the um, I, I've said this many times, once you know what you're looking for and once you know what to listen for, even though the evidence is very subtle, you discover that they're, they're there all along and they're hiding in plain sight. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what happened with you. The question I had, because I've got one of those range finders and I use it, you know, for for range finding out in the forest, um, they're infrared. It's an IR laser, and these things have the ability to see IR. I'm just, I'm just convinced of that. Um, did you ever range it? Hit the button and try to range it, or nope. just no? No, my mine, oh. mine is not. Uh, mine is simply for uh, uh, timber cruising. Uh, so you know when you when you turn it on, it's got a button you click, and it, and it'll give you a horizontal distance, right. and then it has a function where you can measure tree height. But it, when I've tried to do that, uh, it won't go past a couple hundred feet, and this was a couple hundred yards. So I, yeah. I didn't even think to do that, I, and I didn't want I didn't want the 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 uh, you know the crosshair on it because well actually it was already on there, but I, I I was I was offsetting from the crosshair when I was looking at it and zooming in with it so I could actually see the thing. So to try to get a a distance. I I didn't even think to do that because, like I said, I I've, I've tried to do that, and it seems like the, at least the the forestry grade ones that I I use, they they their distance is fairly limited. Like I wouldn't even use mine for hunting, I don't think. But um, so no, I, I didn't. And and yeah. the other thing, I'm sure some people are listening will probably think, well, why didn't he take a picture? Um, because I see this type of stuff all the time. Right. Uh, I don't have time to just be like, oh, I hope that's a Bigfoot. I'm going to take a picture of it. Um, every stump that I see that might look like a Bigfoot, I just don't do it. I, over the year, I used to, 
But over the years, I'm just like, there's enough blob squatches on YouTube and stuff. I'm not even gonna mess right. with it. And and to be quite honest, I was I was pretty shook up by it. Like it, I was pretty shook up. Like I I wasn't thinking straight. My my thought was finish the job and get out of there. And so that's what I did. No, I, I'm with you a thousand percent. And the other thing is, is you know, for most people, you've got a cell phone. Well, some of the modern ones seem to have pretty good optics, but um, you know, when you're talking a couple hundred yards away, what are you going to see? You know, what's a what's it going to pick up? And like you said, your frame of mind is really not on picture taking. You know, I'm with you there, moments. Doug. I used to take pictures of everything on the woods, not the stuff that I thought was Bigfoot, but I just took a lot of pictures of everything, and I don't anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's because if you have something, at least in my my mind, it's like you can. I mean, you know, if you look at the Patterson Gimlin film, I mean, that's that's pretty much right there, all you need. And yet, that's been completely mocked and debated for years. And so, it's like even if you had the best, clearest picture of a Bigfoot staring at you, somebody's somebody, especially in the scientific world, they're going to be like, oh, that's a fake or blah, blah, blah. So I don't even care, you know, like, and that's how I am with this whole thing. Like this, Will's the only person in the Bigfoot community I talk to about this because I, I, I just don't really have much use for the community at all. And so I keep to myself about it. I don't, I don't really talk to people about it unless they ask me. It is funny, though, because I'll have people that, uh, you know, I won't bring it up, and they're like, "Oh, you work in the woods and stuff, and blah blah blah." What about Bigfoot? You ever see that? And I'm like, "Actually, yeah, I do." <laughs> and they're and they're, you know, it's like, you know, I'm like, I'm out there every day. Yeah, these things are out there, and I always tell people it's not, it's not a matter of whether you believe in these things or not. It's it, the question is, is whether or not they exist. And right. It, really, it is. And I and I also think that if we're if all of us are intellectually honest, we really don't know what these are. I can tell you that from what I've seen, they look like a Neanderthal. That's the closest description I can give to what, what I've seen is a Neanderthal. Uh, you know, and the other thing, Doug, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, I've talked to several rangers at two different ranger districts here in Oregon. To a T, every single one of them have either seen one themselves or they said, well, yeah, and some of the rangers who work in the ranger station are, uh, you know, they're just the person behind the desk. They don't actually do field work. Um, and I don't know if ranger is the right word, but they're forestry workers. Mm-hmm. So, um, but to a T, they've all said either we've seen it or, or somebody, uh, some of the field guys have seen it. And uh, and they're just very, very upfront about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, choosing to disbelieve in their existence doesn't make them not exist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would say about this thing is um, this this situation, because um, it's happened to me many times where, and this whole topic is really bizarre. It, it, it just, it's so unconventional to conventional thinking and the encounters and just the, how they move and how they look and their behavior. It's just, it's not something you can, put in a box or or there's no black and white and one thing i'll say is that the day before this encounter when i was working in the same area in the area where that thing was i had been right in there the day before and i had a creeped out feeling i had a creeped out feeling and that's not the first time that's happened that when i when i got pretty much chased out of the woods 
back, it must have been 2015, 2014, I was freaked out the whole time I was in there, and I wasn't looking for them. I didn't think they were in there because there was so much civilization at the bottom of the mountain. I just had this freaked out feeling, and it was the same with this one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just like a sixth sense or something. Like, you know. I've I've wondered about that. I've, I've for years, I've asked, you know, because we get a lot of, a lot of our uh, guests on the show who've had encounters and they've had that creeped out feeling. I've had a weird feeling before. Um, and I've, I just don't know what the biomechanism is. What is it that they, how can they, how is there a projection of that? I don't have an uh-huh. answer, but it's just, uh-huh. but you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. Yeah. 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 Um, I do have a question for you though. Now that I got a forestry guy on the on the, on the show, this isn't specifically Bigfoot related, but you know you talk about the reprod areas, and I assume you guys also deal with, um, you know, like in the wilderness areas when there's fires, you know, there, you've got a lot of fire devastation. Um, how how long does it take for that stuff to kind of bounce back? And let's say a year after a major forest fire came through. Are there food sources in there? You know, do you get deer? Do you get elk? Do you get rabbits, foxes? So yeah, so so fire is <clears throat> the best thing for a forest. It's the best thing for it. A fire is great for the forest. And I can't speak for the east side of the Cascades, um, but I know here when there's a fire that goes through um, the uh, in forestry we call it secession. It's a, uh, and we have early cereal species that come up, you know, plants, and we have early cereal trees that come up. Um, and so, in the line of secession, <clears throat> after a disturbance such as a fire, or a landslide, or a flood, it's it's relatively quickly, um, especially after a forest fire. I would say uh, we have, we actually have foresters that specialize in this, and I'm not one of them, but you know, I would say at least within about four or five years, you're going to have a a forest that's establishing on its own pretty quickly. Because here, we, especially with hemlock, hemlock's like the weed tree here. It's a, it's, it's a merchantable tree, but it's, (laughs) it just seeds like crazy. And so I love your description. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. So it's pretty quick. The turnaround for the fires. That's for sure. Okay. Well, that's good. That's actually good news because we're, you know, we got hammered pretty hard this year in Oregon with some substantial. And it's not like the whole area burns. It's kind of a mosaic. You know, it's weird. You get little islands that are just totally untouched mm-hmm. for weird reasons. Who knows why? Just the chaos of how fire works. But uh, no, I was just curious about that. So you say the hemlocks and the forest starts to rebuild itself. And I'm assuming the wildlife comes in fairly quickly thereafter or yeah they they really like those early cereal uh sites because they're just an abundance of browse okay so, well that's you know it's such good news if somebody that works in the woods here that is one of my colleagues is listening to this that that is like a, a fire ecology guy they're gonna be like dude you, you missed this you missed that you missed this and i'm like you know what i'm a timber cruiser you know sue me i don't care i gave my best <laughs> on that but, Forestry is kind of like engineering. There's niches, and certain people go into niches within it, and 
mine's timber cruising. I'm not a forest ecologist or fire ecologist kind of guy. So. No, yeah, no, it's a very complex system. You know, you're talking yeah. living biology. You know, it's so there's a lot to it. Um, I, the reason I was asking was, you know, if the critters come back, then the, you know, it's presumably the Bigfoot are going to follow the game, and those areas will have Bigfoot in them as well. So that just just a question, so a curiosity well, I had. Th- this area. After I came off the mountain, I, when I got off the mountain, as soon as I got civil service, I called Will and told him about this. And, um, you know, he had mentioned, well, they're, you know, they're probably in there hunting deer. And, of course, I was right next to a river. But um, but the funny thing is is that I, I was seeing deer sign in the unit. There wasn't a lot, though. Um, so and one thought I had was I have this garment I wear. I'm a, you know, like a mountain man, fur trapper enthusiast, and I have this wool capote that I wear when I'm in the woods in this type of weather, and it's just a, a brown wool blanket coat that's got a hood on it, and it's got beadwork and stuff and fringe and stuff, and <laughs> and it kind of looks like a Bigfoot when you have the hood on. It's brown. It's got fringe on it. It looks like hair, and it's got this hood on it that almost looks kind of like a like a KKK type cape or something, you know, and and I had that on most of the day. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I was like, man, I kind of look like a Bigfoot, you know, I hope I'm not bringing one of these things in on me. And it didn't dawn on (laughs) me later, you know, I was like, I wonder if that thing was like, is that a Bigfoot? (laughs) You know, (laughs) kind of small. That is kind of funny though, isn't it? Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's interesting thought. Well, what do you do during, I'm assuming you're out there during October, during hunting season, do you guys have to like wear, you know, bright, you know, colored vests or what? Yeah. I mean, it, you don't have to, but it's smart to do that. Um, and certain, certain clients that we have require it. Um, but, and so, yeah, I, I don't wear like an orange vest. I have a, a red timber cruisers vest that has reflective tape on it that is sewn into the vest. And, and I wear that and I have like an orange thing that holds my data logger thing. So, and then I have a, a like a, a wood dowel I use for a walking pole, um, and that's got like pink and orange ribbon I put on it. So you you can see me pretty good. And of course, when the hunters are around driving those clear cuts, or if I'm in the woods, and I see one, I'll stop and kind of wave my stick around so they can see me. But but there are a fair amount of incidents where people get shot, you know. And why that? It, 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 in my opinion, if <laughs> you know somebody gets shot by a hunter, the hunter has no business being out there. But unfortunately, exactly. that happens. So. Yeah, no, no. There's well, I've been shot at, and some of those hunters are not the sharp attack on the wall. We'll just leave it at that. They're not yeah. the brightest. Um, so you're working in a reprod area, and kind of the same thing there. They it grows up quickly, and I'm assuming the wildlife moves in. And presumably, you know, especially if this guy, this Bigfoot, was like in one of those riparian zones, uh, he's probably looking for, I'm assuming, some sort of a meal. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good assumption. I mean, there's the river there. Um, and I think I think it's called Deer Creek. I call it a river because it's, it's pretty wide. But uh, it's called, I think it was Deer Creek, and that's pretty good size. And I don't know if it's got fish running in it right now, but there's that, and then there's obvious. There's there was a lot of water there. There was a lot of water coming off the mountain down into the river, and then you had the river itself, and then those riparian areas. And but the other thing though is that the 
the deer population here, like most people that are good hunters around here, they go east of the Cascades. They go to eastern Washington. They go to Idaho. They go to Montana because hunting here sucks. It, I grew up in eastern Oregon, and I remember hunting was just, it, was, it wasn't hard. You go out, you, you see a deer, a buck, you shoot it. It's not that hard. Here, it, it's, it, there's, you, don't, you hardly ever see a deer, a buck yeah. especially. And, um, you know, all the old-timers here say, well, that's because the Forest Service quit cutting timber. And, you know, there used to be clear cuts everywhere, and, and the reprod would come in and, and, and the feed and everything, and there was a lot of game, and there's just not that much here anymore. And I don't know if that's what it is. Um, but I don't see a, a ton of deer here. It's like when I go to the east side to my family's place, you'll be sitting in a cabin having dinner, and you'll look out the window, and there's deer everywhere. It's not like that here. And so yeah. were they were they hunting deer? I don't know. Because if there was a deer in that unit, I would have known, because I, it's, the bow season for late archery starts this week. I, I would have been interested, you know, and um, I didn't see any deer in there. And so uh, I don't know, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I understand, and I'm familiar with Eastern Oregon. Yeah, yeah, and plus you get the muleys east of the or east of the uh, Cascades, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little bigger deer and a little more meat on them. Um, do you guys have anything? Uh, we're starting to see more and more in the Western Cascades uh, footprints and howls from uh, Canadian gray wolves. Do you guys have anything like that that you know about, or? Yeah, we we do. Um, I don't know the species. Uh, I just know that um, that they're 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 making a comeback here in the North Cascades as well as the grizzly. Um, the uh, I saw a grizzly uh, eastern northeastern Washington, just up by the border, and then um, we have a, a guy here that you know he's a helicopter pilot and he flies over the north cascades all the time and he had he had seen a few up in the north cascades just kind of east of where i'm at and basically where i'm at uh if you were to head due east you'd be near uh i think it's uh lake chelan um and so anyway the grizzlies are making a comeback uh and, and the wolves are as well and i've talked to other foresters that have seen the wolves so we definitely have a comeback with those two yeah and I don't think, for the most part, I don't think wolves are a threat to humans. Grizzlies, yeah, you got to be cautious. But the wolves, at least the, the, the big ones, and I've seen some absolutely monstrously huge tracks with cubs next to it. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, they, uh, I think they do thrill kills, and they'll just go in and decimate a herd of deer or elk if they can get away with it, you know, if they can uh-huh. catch them. Yeah. But it's not necessarily, that's not Bigfoot related, just interesting well you know another thing yeah another thing i also know for a fact is that there's a lot more people than there was i mean when i was growing up 30 years ago in hood river oregon there wasn't a ton of people there and you know so there was more pickings for the game you know now i mean hunting season in washington state's ridiculous i mean it's ridiculous it's like being in fallujah iraq uh during modern firearms I mean, it's just bang, bang. You can be sitting on a ridge somewhere, and it's just bang, bang. There's people everywhere in Orange chasing, shooting. It's crazy. And so uh, there's just more people, too. And maybe that's it, too. It's just there's so many there's just more people out hunting. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why you're just not seeing as much. And, of course, there's other things, too. There's obviously poaching. And, uh, and of course, the, the tribes where I live, um, they, they have access to, obviously, I don't know what they're hunting uh 
allowance, I guess I would say is, but they, they're, they're also able to go out and harvest for uh, uh, tribal reasons and ceremonial reasons, and uh, that, that could also be it too. Um, I'm not anti-tribal at all. I, I support our local tribes, and we, we actually work together um, uh, to just make sure that we're conducting forestry in an ecologically sound manner, and they play a big part in that. So I'm definitely not anti-native tribes or anything, but uh, I saw. But I don't, like I said, I don't know if it's just a combination of all the people. I'm not really sure, but but the deer the deer population I think has definitely been hurt by something. And of course, we've had all this bizarre weather, and the the wildfires are getting worse and worse. This this last year was horrific. Uh, it was it was so bad you couldn't even go outside. I'm sure being in Oregon, you know, and, and I same thing. When I was growing yeah. up, you didn't see that. So no, no, you didn't you didn't see that. So always had something that's sort of in the back of my mind is how is this affecting the wildlife? And and um, you know, I've talked to other foresters who said, well, you know, there's like a 12 year cycle after, you know, during that 12 year period of a burned out area you get a different type of wildlife. You get owls, you get snowshoe hares, you get foxes. And then as that area kind of grows up and matures a little bit, then you get some of the larger animals. Um, mm-hmm. So that's always, I suppose that's encouraging. But uh, yeah. Yeah, like I've always wondered. The, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean it. No, no, I was just going to say, I've often wondered what impact we won't know this would have on uh, on our Bigfoot friends, if we can call them friends. <laughs> The Bigfoot species. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big mystery. Um my thought is just <clears throat> over the over the years the 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 encounters and signs and everything that I've seen, um they obviously have a big range and there's there's a lot of them. And they have the ability to pretty much be invisible to us. And one thing I was telling Will in that phone conversation is that most people, when they go in the woods, uh, they, their their senses are really battered and dull because they're used to staring at their phones and they live in just a, 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 a man-made world. And when they're in the natural world, their mind doesn't, it's not trained to pick up uh, things that, Perhaps it, it it was when 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 our ancestors were hunter gatherers and they had to to be able to pick up on things in order to survive and so I and so I, I say that to say this I, I've seen I've had people in my profession uh, literally walk right by me when I wasn't trying to be like stealthy or ninja or anything I was just more doing my job I had a, a, a an orange vest on and a bright helmet. And they walk right by me and didn't even know I was there. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, my gosh, you scared me. And I'm like, dude, how could you not see me? Are you that uh, clueless as to, you know, but but, but I I've, see I've that all the time. And so I think that, uh, you know, so many people, they go out in the woods and they just, they they don't really know how to see. And, and it's not necessarily right. our fault. It's just our modern society, you know. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. Uh, and, again, that goes back to the creatures where, you know, I mentioned earlier, they're, uh, it's an unseen realm. Well, and, you know, they're, you remember what Forrest, they're out there. Forrest has mentioned a few times, she talked about chimps who stand completely still yeah. for a long time periods and people walk right by them without seeing them. Uh-huh. So these yeah. things are going to be very similar to yeah, that. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, with Doug's latest encounter, I was thinking about that. They just, if somebody can walk past you and you're in a bright orange vest, and Will, we had a guy on 
uh, a vet who just for fun sometimes he'll wear a bright red checkered plaid shirt and stand right there next to the trail and people walk right well, by him and well, you know see people him. don't know what they're looking at out there I, I mentioned before on a show that uh you know i quit hunting years ago because my dad and i were right next to my brand new dodge truck that stuck out like a sore thumb because of the coloring and, and chrome all over it in the bright sun unloading our rifles in a in a landing and a bullet hit right between the two of us <laughs> my dad shot yeah. back at the yeah. guy and the guy hollered out, hey you're shooting at a man <laughs> my dad says you damn fool what do you think you're shooting at down here so I mean, yeah. you know that stuff. People don't—they don't pay attention to what's going on out there. That exact yeah. same thing happened to me when I was a kid. Somebody was shooting at us from across a valley or ravine, and unbeknownst to them, they were shooting at my uh, a World War II vet. <laughs> Who didn't well, my take dad. it lightly? My dad was a World War II vet, also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he didn't take too kindly to that. Return fire. Yep. <laughs> Oh man! All right, fellas, listen, Doug. We're oh, we're running low on time, I, I, so go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. No, I just want to thank Doug. It's good talking to you, and everything uh, today's show is just very, very fascinating, very riveting. Night, so I'm hoping you stay in touch with us and keep us up to date. You know, with future uh, encounters. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I. I, I I don't really like to tell people about this thing and um it and i i don't I, I never anticipated having the encounter i had the other day and so and i just i knew that it was something that was worth sharing you know and maybe somebody can learn something from it i don't know you know that's just it though you never know I, when something's going to happen you just don't it, yeah 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 that's why like i said when i go out in the woods i'm just like you know i can't because you know, like I said earlier in my career, I thought that I could, I could be, you know, I could be all sneaky and and uh, and you know, and see them before they saw me type deal. And and I used to, in my earlier career, I used to go out armed to the teeth with you know, pistol, uh, AR type rifle, and uh, ready to rock and roll if I I've ran into one. But I've I've learned over the years you can't do that. It's just it, you're not going to, you know, one of these things, if they want to get you, they're going to get you. And you're, there's not nothing you can do about it. So. And they're going to see you before uh -huh. you see them anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and I one thing, another thing I would say is that um, since I, a lot of people would think this is stupid, but I, I don't carry a firearm with me. And most of the most of the time you can't anyway. The, the, the agencies and clients that we have, it's just their policy on their forest lines. You can't carry one, and I just don't carry one, never have, except for my earlier career. And I've definitely had more contact not carrying a firearm than when I did have a firearm. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's, you know, they see that and they're like, uh-oh, you know, get out of here, I'm not sure. But, well, there's something to that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. all right Doug well, well, listen we appreciate you coming on man yeah thank you for having me uh, if I have something crazy come up I'll give you a call Will I, I honestly hope that I don't have to call you <laughs> yeah well call, call me anytime you want you know and Tom you got anything you want to say before we wrap this no no I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and I especially want to thank Doug he's definitely a friend of uh, Creek Devil and uh, you know, I know you don't want to you don't want another encounter, but if you do, we always look forward to hearing from you. So stay on after the show. We'll just share a couple things with you if that's if you get the time. 
Well, sure. And one thing I'd like to add uh, is uh, I, I heard one of your episodes uh, about the woman in Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I, I really liked what she had to say. Um, I, I listened to that just actually right after I talked to Will about this one. And it's really interesting what she had to say and the experiences she had. And um, it's, a, it's a good show. You know, a lot of these Bigfoot shows are just, you know, like I said, in my opinion, my professional opinion, I guess I'll say. As a forester, most of it's crap. That's just how I feel about it. But I think this is a good show that's teaching people some good, valuable information on the topic, for sure. Well, we appreciate that, buddy. All right. I'll uh, be in touch. All right. Thanks again, man. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. In Bigfoot History. Trinity Alps, California, April 1966. Nick Campbell Pomona told Ken Coon that on April 3rd, arriving at a campsite north of Weaverville, he and friends saw something large and dark run down a very steep bank. That night, something was throwing the trash cans around, and one of the group shone a flashlight under the edge of the tent and saw a Sasquatch, which turned and stared at the light, dropped the can in its hand, turned and walked off. Next day, three miles west of camp, they saw the creature again while eating lunch, and spent half an hour playing hide-and-seek until it finally went away. Several of them saw it. It was seen once more on that trip, raided the trash can two more times, and took some raw bacon and eggs they left out for it. The Denna people liked him, Tex Cobb. No sentiment was wasted on either side, but he and the tribesmen had a live-and-let-live understanding that was rare in those days. He stayed off their trap lines, and they stayed off his. If an Indian had a salmon net in an eddy, Texas found another eddy, and vice versa. Due to the fact that the Indians trusted him, we became involved with what today would be called, I suppose, an abominable snowman. I have since heard and read a great deal about the abominable snowman. I have seen the photographs of those tracks in the snow on a Tibetan mountain, and to me they are simply the tracks of a man with gunny sack or some cloth wrapped around his feet as protection from the cold, climbing slewfoot because the slope was steep and he had no crampons. But when I was a youngster roaming the north with Tex, we had never heard of the abominable snowman. We had, however, heard much about Gilyuk, the shaggy cannibal giant, sometimes called the big man with a little hat. Our adventure with Gilyuk occurred while we were camped in a pretty spruce park on Yellow Jacket Creek, south of Tyrone Lake. We had spent the entire summer on this mountain, Gert Nelchina Plateau, wandering about in aimless nomad fashion. Tex said we were prospecting and looking for fur sign. Maybe we were. He always had to have an excuse for enjoying the country. A commercial excuse, if he could think of one. Anyway, it was now late September, the beautiful time. No mosquitoes. The land ablaze with color. The fish and the meat animals, summer fat. The caribou horde gathering. And we were footloose and free, as perhaps men can never be again. This morning, Tex was making coffee, and I was down at the creek clearing a mess of grayling for breakfast, when six Indians filed through the timber. 
They stood for a moment, solemnly regarding our four horses. To them, a horse was a rarity, a mysterious animal. They called them McKinley Moose because McKinley was the only president they had ever heard of, and the horses were as big as moose. I followed them to the camp. Have you eaten? Tex asked them in Denna. They said they had eaten. Chief Stickman was with them. I had seen him once before, at Eklinta Village. A squat, square-faced man, very dark, with long hair and quick-moving obsidian eyes. He was the Denna boss of this entire area, and his reputation was bad. But now, he had trouble that he couldn't handle. He told us about it, and as he talked, he kept standing first on one leg, then the other, balancing himself with the moccasined sole of the free foot against the knee of the supporting leg. I don't know whether it was habit or a medicine trick to ward off evil spirits or both, but it was disconcerting. He had come into this area two days ago, he said, with some of his people to kill and cache caribou for winter use. But they had discovered that Gilyuk, the shaggy giant, was hanging around. They found his sign yesterday, and of course, everybody knew that Gilyuk wasn't interested in caribou. Gilyuk ate men. What kind of sign? Tex asked. We will take you to see it, Stickman said. It's not far. After breakfast, we followed the Indians upstream a couple of miles to a burned flat on which a nurse crop of aspen and birch had grown. In the center of the flat stood a ruined birch sapling. It had been about four inches through and maybe ten feet tall. Something had twisted the sapling, as a man would twist a matchstick. The wood had separated into individual fibers. The bark hung in tatters. Stickman and his hunters stood back while Tex and I looked the sight over. Moose often ride a sapling down to get at the tender upper twigs. So do caribou. But no moose or caribou had done this. This had been done by something with hands. It had happened yesterday, because the leaves of the sapling had not yet completely wilted. It wasn't the work of lightning. No burns. A freak whirlwind hadn't done it, because trees and brush a few yards distant were undamaged. The hard ground showed no tracks. We found no snagged hair on the brush. Absolutely nothing, except the incredibly twisted birch sapling. It was, without question, the eeriest sight I have ever beheld in the wilds. Stickman said, It is Gilyuk's mark. We have seen it before. I wish to make clear that to the Denna people, Gilyuk was no legendary creature their grandfathers had told them about. He was a reality and they spoke of him as they spoke of bears and wolves. They saw his sign, and they saw him. He was a shaggy giant who wore a little hat and ate men. We want to ask you to camp with us until we have killed our caribou, Stickman said. Gilyak doesn't molest white men. Perhaps he will not molest us if you are in the camp. Stickman had already told us that he was bivouacked on the shore of a pothole lake two hours to the eastward. Tex said all right, we would move to his camp in the morning. As he was still looking at the twisted sapling, his green eyes narrowed in thought. I couldn't take my gaze off of it either. Stickman said, thanks, Kosaki, a strange word of respect held over from the old Russian Cossack, and we parted company with the Indians. Next morning, I brought the horses in at daybreak. We ate, broke camp, and were putting on the packs when 
here came the Indians, all of them. All, that is, except Stickman. An old man told us Stickman was dead. Gilyuk had taken him. The chief had got up in the night and gone down to the lake, perhaps for water, but nobody knew. A squaw with a birch bark torch found his red flannel underwear on the gravel beach. It had been torn off of him. There may have been tracks, but the entire hunting party had swarmed over the beach, and by daylight no tracker on earth could have made sense of the jumble. Well, until the day of his own death last July, while on a sentimental journey to a fateful spot in Cook Inlet, Tex was convinced that the cannibal giant Gilyuk killed Stickman. When asked if he believed in the existence of abominable snowmen, Tex would reply that he didn't think there were any around in Alaska nowadays, but that they had existed, at least one of them, a couple of decades back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.